It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon. Welcome to the expanded Inside Sources. It's nice to be with you for the next two hours. I'm Greg Scordis filling in today for Boyd Matheson, who's probably enjoying a little holiday time with his family, and I'm happy to be here for the next couple of hours. We've got a very busy show. We've got a lot to cover today, and I'm very happy that uh, that there's so much going on uh, during the week between Christmas and New Year's when there's usually not a lot going on. Most importantly, or at least uh, for the first uh, part of our show, um, some some of you might remember uh, years ago the, the Iran nuclear deal that uh, was imposed in 2015. Uh, by the Obama administration, and it was an agreement with several countries, including Iran, to lift sanctions against that country with respect mostly to their being able to distribute and sell oil. The The agreement was entered into between Iran and not only the U.S., but China, Russia, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the European Union. The The deal was struck in and what the uh, what the West got out of it was that Iran agreed to limit their nuclear arsenal, to limit their nuclear progress, to limit what they were doing, um, really reduce their nuclear stockpile. And importantly, the uh, Iranians were uh, had agreed to limit the the uh, the strength of their uh, uranium to 60%, which is fuel grade, and not 90%, which is weapons grade. They also agreed uh, not to use or purchase any more what they call advanced centrifuges, which helped them create that. Um, as you probably also remember, uh, the Trump administration immediately got the U.S. out of the Iranian nuclear deal and sort of claimed that the Iranians weren't really paying attention anyway, that they were cheating a little bit, and there was no reason for us to be part of a deal when we weren't getting our end of the bargain, and reimposed sanctions on Iran. Uh, Fast forward to now, and we are in the eighth round of talks uh, on the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. They're going on right now in Vienna, and we were fortunate enough today to uh, be able to interview um, Nicholas Carl, a senior policy analyst with the uh, with the uh, Critical Threats Project to talk about this and more. He gave us an update on what was going on in Vienna and what we can expect with this latest round and, again, the eighth round of talks. We have the resumption of the Vienna nuclear talks ongoing at this moment between Iran, the United States, uh, European powers, as well as China and Russia. And thus far, it's very unclear as to whether we are going to see a meaningful breakthrough in these nuclear negotiations uh, and over the fate of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, oftentimes known as the nuclear deal. Thus far, the regime has seemingly retained its very maximalist position in these negotiations, demanding a lot of things 
that are in excess of the JCPOA and the agreements previously negotiated. These latest talks are the first since the inauguration of Iran's new president. Previously, the last round of talks had happened in, I believe, June of 2021, and then it had gone on a multi-month-long hiatus. Uh, but simultaneously, the regime has expanded its nuclear program and undertaken a variety of very aggressive nuclear initiatives that are meant to pressure the United States and the European powers and impose a sense of urgency on Western negotiators. And, and that uh, imposition of urgency is what the what the talks are all about right now. Iran is meeting with the U.S. and European powers and China to try to hammer out a nuclear deal right now. We don't know how this is going to turn out. This is, uh, like I said earlier, the eighth round of negotiations in this. Iran has a new administration. The United States has a new administration. And I think a lot of the other countries that are sitting back looking at this are wondering if, in fact, the fact that we now have uh, President Biden as opposed to President Trump means that we're going to cut a deal now. But two years from now, if we have a Republican back in office, are we going to set this all aside? The same with the Iranians. They've got a new administration and the West is wondering, hey, this new administration seems willing to negotiate. They seem willing to talk. But is that going to change when that regime ends? Um, we, we interviewed Nicholas Carl. And he would also talk to us about other issues that negotiators might face with the Iranian regime apparently becoming a little bit more authoritarian to their people at home. The regime is responding to a series of mounting domestic pressures and stressors, uh, and those include the deteriorating economy, an increasingly restive population, and popular protests, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, among other things. And essentially, the regime is building an increasingly adaptive and sophisticated police and surveillance state. Now, one point I want to make clear is that the regime's use of repression is not new in and of itself. The Iranian leadership has long used various repressive measures in order to impose social control. What's new here, however, is that the regime has begun to intensify a lot of these repressive activities within recent years to a very concerning degree. And this shift reflects a evolution in, or, or, or perhaps a change in the fundamental relationship between this revolutionary state and its people. The regime is increasingly viewing its people as enemies and potential enemies rather than willing constituents of the state. One of the most concerning ways in which, from my perspective, the regime has begun to equip itself to handle domestic unrest and quash any kind of internal dissent is how Iranian leadership has begun to really embrace digital authoritarianism, which is this concept that describes how autocrats and other authoritarian governments can take advantage of advanced and emerging technologies in order to keep their hold on power. Iranian leadership has seen the success of the Chinese Communist Party in imposing social control and its own sort of experiment with this on its own population and has begun to take a variety of actions that are seemingly inspired by the Chinese model. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that Iran is transitioning into a uh, system that mirrors China in any meaningful way, but more so that the regime has, for example, begun to embrace things such as face-recognizing cameras and artificial intelligence. Um, they are building their own intranet that will facilitate the regime's efforts to disrupt telecommunications and block internet access throughout the country. And these things can all be used in different ways 
in order to better monitor the population and, again, suppress dissent. Interviewed earlier today, Nicholas Carl, the senior analyst at the Critical Threats Project, and he's talking about the uh, latest round of talks uh, with respect to the Iranian nuclear deal and where we are and whether or not that can be revised and uh, whether or not other countries can, can, can trust both the U.S. and the Iranians to keep the to keep the flow to keep it on track, because as we know, a deal that was cut in 2005 was immediately uncut by the Trump administration in 2016. So both sides are wondering: Look, if we gonna if we're going to do a deal, let's do the deal, um, and let and let's have it last for some time. Um, talking about the new Iranian regime, uh, Nicholas Carl also said this: One of the components to the regime's pivot toward this more repressive model is the ascension of some of the most hardline and radical elements of Iran's political establishment. Uh, this has been an ongoing trend over the past couple of years, and perhaps the most significant part of this transition, uh, which some may already be familiar with, was the uh, victory in this year's presidential election of the hardliner Ibrahim Raisi, who replaced the relative moderate Hassan Rouhani. And Raisi has a very interesting economic philosophy that seems to combine autarky with selective external engagement with different actors. Uh, and this is very different, I want to point out, to the economic philosophy of Hassan Rouhani, his predecessor. Rouhani had a very integrationist idea for the economy in which he believed that the best economic orientation for the Iranian regime is one that focuses on engagement with the, with the world and uh, increasing interactions with global markets. And Raisi does not shy away from external engagement altogether, but again, he's placed and made a very key point to his administration and policy priorities and agenda is upgrading Iran's indigenous capacities, boosting domestic production, supporting various markets and things like that. Uh, now, of course, the success of his policies remain to be seen at this point. To be sure, he will uh, sell oil and things like things of that nature, uh, either illicitly or illicitly uh, to various states and non-state actors. But he seems to be pursuing any economic orientation very different uh, in some key ways to his predecessor. When we come back, we now know the challenges negotiators are facing when they try to get a nuclear deal done with Iran. But what are the solutions? We'll have more of our interview with Nicholas Carl right after this break. Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm your host, Greg Scordis, filling in today for Boyd Matheson. We spent the first uh, segment of the show today talking about some really important talks that are happening right now in Vienna, Austria. The uh, talks are between a a number of countries in trying to decide if there is a way to reestablish the Iran nuclear deal that was uh, set in and agreed to by a number of countries in 2015. Those countries included the United States, of course, Iran, China, Russia, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the European Union. Those, the, the Iran nuclear deal at the time was set up to release some of the pressure and some of the sanctions that had been placed on Iran uh, by Western countries. And in exchange, Iran agreed to limit its nuclear fuel production and cease its nuclear weapons uh, production um, and, 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 and agreed to allow, allow the West to sort of confirm and, and check and make sure that they were doing things correctly. Uh, come the new administration in the United States in 2016, and the President Trump said, 
we're not we're being fooled by Iran. We're not going to be part of this deal anymore because they're not keeping their word, and we're going to reimpose sanctions. Now we're with another uh, democratic administration, and the rest of the world's wondering, hey, are we flip-flopping again? Um, but the talks are open. The talks are open again, and we are trying to decide whether or not we can reestablish this um, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, the eight countries are are involved in this. It's the eighth round of, of talks on the subject. And we were able to interview earlier today, right before the show, Nicholas Carl, senior analyst of the Critical Threats Project, who gave us some insight into this. He talked about the need for the United States to keep in the driver's seat, to keep the pressure on in these negotiations. So the first trend that's ongoing right now is that as the regime increasingly equips itself to handle domestic unrest, is that it could come in time to see its repressive model as a source of leverage and strength. The regime could increasingly feel as though it is able to behave aggressively abroad without uh, fear of consequence and does not necessarily feel the same degree of urgency to absorb the economic benefits of the nuclear deal, right? If the regime feels as though it can really control the situation and doesn't necessarily need the stuff, then that's going to affect the degree of urgency that it feels, right? So I think this is important to emphasize. Uh, because it's been the case in the past that internal considerations have informed the regime's external calculus. The second thing is that Iranian leadership does not likely believe that the JCPOA or any other nuclear deal is sustainable. The regime has learned from its experience with uh, the past several American presidents and administrations and acknowledges the possibility that there could be a future presidential administration that pursues a policy strategy perhaps similar to that of Donald Trump, the resumption of the maximum pressure strategy, uh, the U.S. using economic pressure in order to get Iran to change some of its aggressive and malign behavior. If we find ourselves in a position in which the regime is both feeling less urgency to conclude the deal and also does not necessarily believe that it's sustainable, then that puts us the United States in a very difficult position because the Biden administration has made it clear that they're trying to prioritize the revival of the JCPOA um, in its Iran policy. The problem, though, is that if the regime realizes that this is a huge priority for the United States but does not necessarily feel that same you know, person, internal prioritization, then we could find ourselves in a position in which the regime is very eager to halt, delay, or perhaps even reverse the implementation of some nuclear deals provisions as a means of pressuring the West. And so the United States needs to be very conscious that it cannot self-constrain itself from addressing the full range of issues that we face vis-a-vis Iran. And so we cannot allow the regime to, I guess, hold the nuclear deal hostage in order to pressure us. And Iran is claiming that, in fact, the United States, even if there is a lifting of sanctions, and there has been somewhat, that they're not really lifting those sanctions. So the Iranians are looking at the United States saying, look, you've agreed to lift sanctions. You've agreed to uh, allow us to uh, open our oil lines, uh, open our sales of oil lines, and and release these sanctions. But we really haven't seen that. It hasn't come to to bear. And the United States is pushing back saying, well, you've also agreed uh, to limit your nuclear uh, production, uh, to to limit or uh, really do away with your uh, nuclear uh, weapons uh, production. And we haven't seen much that way either. Both sides are really saying we don't really need this deal. 
But the rest of the world is saying, yes, you do. China, Russia, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, the European Union are saying, you guys need to work this out. We're here to mediate, to moderate, to get something done here and to make sure that something is put in place so that both sides can get and get the benefit of the bargain. That is that the Iranians can continue uh, to open up their their uh, their fuel, uh, their oil uh, production uh, without restraint. Uh, and the United States looking at them saying, okay, but we, you also need to be a little better with your people. You need to be better with your weapons uh, stockpiles. And we, we t- need to be able to verify this. Um, our, our guest... Nicholas Carl from the uh, Critical Threats Project also chimed in on one last thing. He discussed the need for the United States to highlight something regular people might not know about. The regime has demonstrated previously its capability and willingness to import some of its foreign proxy fighters into Iran in order to repress civilians during popular protests. Uh, this is very interesting. Uh, we've seen this in the 2009 Green Movement. We've seen it in other occasions. Um, of course, a lot of this information is not verified, and so it's difficult to confirm that this actually happened. If this is the case, the United States should make a point to shine a spotlight on this repression. If the regime is bringing in Iraqi proxy fighters or Lebanese proxy fighters, the United States should make a point of broadcasting this reality if the United States can prove that this is true. Because at the end of the day, we should show Iraqi and Lebanese citizens where the allegiances of these proxies truly lie if they're off expending resources on suppressing Iranian citizens instead of you know, uh, investing a lot of their resources at home. It's, it's, it's a subject that's really ongoing and has been ongoing for decades. And we've had issues with Iran as far as I can remember. And it goes both ways. I mean, they don't trust us or we don't trust them. The rest of the world is looking at us both saying, you guys need to work something out. Uh, that was really helpful interview with Nicholas Carl, senior policy analyst with the Critical Threats Project, who joined us this morning and gave us some insight into these talks that are going on. When we come back, Democrats in Washington, D.C. seem to be taking the advice of inside sources and changing tactics in order to get their social spending bill passed. What are they doing and why does it matter to you? We'll talk about that after the break. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.